We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. If you could go back in time and talk with Jesus and ask him just one question, what would it be? I've thought about this quite a bit, and I suppose that's why I picked this passage. But I've thought, what do I want to know? What do I want to happen? I would need to consider carefully from my heart of hearts because what I would ask would say something about me, would say something about my soul. I haven't settled on a question yet. I was thinking of our text last week. I was at the, uh, a number of us were from, uh, we're at the Urbana Missions Conference in Indianapolis. And if you got to see this on on screen or or in person, they had a circular stage and 6,000 people were surrounding it during the, the big plenary talks. And I thought about the man in our text in a crowd of that size, fighting his way to the front so that he could ask a question. And we know at the beginning of the chapter that so many thousands of people had gathered that they were trampling on one another. Thousands surrounding Jesus, straining to hear a word of hope, a teaching that might guide their lives. People around him must have been saying, Jesus is a great teacher. He heals illness, blindness even. There's even a rumor that he raised someone from the dead. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah, the savior of Israel. And so the man thinks, here's my chance. The miracle healer, the savior of Israel right in front of me. What am I going to ask? Should I ask, Lord, if you're willing, make me well? No, something more important. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? No, actually more important than that. I say, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, so maybe his priorities are not well thought through. But the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And this comes from his heart of hearts. And Jesus' response to him is stern. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, man sometimes can be used gently, but not here. This is a rebuke. Jesus rebukes him, and it is the most loving thing he could have done. I didn't think this before. When I read this story before, I thought, isn't Jesus being rude or unfair? Maybe he has a good legal case. Maybe the brother is the greedy one, or at least the greedy-er one. And it may be so. But it is not 
I mean, and it's not to say that fairness or legal rights are not important. It's just to say that in this case, there is something that is more important. This man is in a crowd of many thousands. And though he may not realize that his creator or savior is in front of him, he at least knows that Jesus heals. He at least knows or heard that Jesus may be the Messiah. If this is the matter that he brings before Jesus, it reveals a problem in his soul. Now, Jesus does have the authority to adjudicate this case, but he does not ever use his authority to deepen a person's sin. The most loving thing is not to resolve or to settle the inheritance issue in this man's favor, but to wake him up. He needs to show him that his eternal soul is at stake. And so Jesus rebukes him out of love, and he teaches. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, this plan is actually quite reasonable. It's prudent. It's well thought out. You know, he's planning for retirement, setting aside his resources. I mean, he's not spending it on wild living. He's not gambling it away. So what is the problem? Is God against 401ks? If that's the case, we should alert our church administrator right away. We have a 403B, but that's different. Why is Jesus using this story to illustrate covetousness? And then I looked at the parable a bit more closely, and it revealed something that was disturbing. You know how sometimes you might read um, uh, a Bible passage, and you take turns where one person plays one part, like Jesus, and the other person plays disciples, and one person plays the woman at the well? Well, in this particular parable, there is one character. Although I suppose you could act out the part where he talks to, you know, himself. There is no one else. And he refers to himself a lot. Now, our English translation, for ease of reading, so that's not quite so awkward, that takes out a lot of the pronouns that are, that are in the original language. But he does refer to himself quite a bit. And it's a good exercise right now to count it together and see how many times he refers to himself. So here's the preamble. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now, from verse 17. 
and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere where I will store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many ample goods stored up for many years. You relax, you eat, you drink, you be merry. 19 times. But here's another remarkable fact. In the original Greek, there are 53 words in this section. And 12 of them are conjunctions, adverbs that are neutral. But every other word, including these 19 we just counted, are related or grammatically connected to the rich man. The my barns and my grain are his. The ample goods stored up for many years are his. Jesus's parable tells us not just in the narrative, but in the grammar, that there is nothing on this person's mind except for himself. God rightfully calls him a fool. The foolish person is the one who is thoughtless, self-centered, and obviously indifferent to God. Covetousness is the desire to have more than one's due, or what is rightfully theirs, without reference to one's actual needs or the needs of others. In this story, the man has no interest in serving God, no consideration of any other person. He, has, he is rich, he has no qualms about getting richer, and as we have just pointed out, the story is as self-centered as it possibly could be. Some might use wealth to see the world, learn something new, but this person, his only concern is self-indulgence. He is indeed a fool. Now, a parable is a teaching tool. So let's presume for a moment that the person who approached him is not this extreme, not quite so self-centered, but there is a lesson here. The parable appears on first reading, on first blush, appears reasonable, innocent. And to me, this is a warning. We can get caught up in sin in ways of thinking and speaking and relating that gradually entangles us in a web. And it seems fine, we seem fine, until one day, with some introspection, we ask, what would I ask of Jesus? And by golly, God needs to wake us up and to rebuke us. And it is an urgent matter, because at any point, our soul may be required of us, and we may be called into account. So what must we do? How does this passage apply to us? 
Well, in a way, textually, this is quite clear. There is only one command in this passage. Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Paul writes in Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There are two matters I want to address today together. One, how covetousness is idolatry, and why, should, why we should avoid it. And two, our relation to the things of this world through the lens of stewardship. The person who approached Jesus that day was looking for something, and it was something good. When we look for money or power, we are actually looking for something good. We don't, for instance, covet another person's addiction or their illness. We look for the good things that are good. And for this man, in getting a split of the inheritance and inquiring an abundance of possessions, he was hoping for security, perhaps standing in his community, honor from those in his hometown. Now, honor and security are good things that we all want. The problem is not what he wants, but how he wants to achieve it. What Jesus saw that day in that man was a person who was placing his hopes on material possessions. And no doubt, money and riches, they do deliver a measure of security or standing or honor for a time. It's extremely tempting And that's why, you know, Paul tells Timothy, there are some people eager for money who have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. These are believers. Temptations are tempting because they are, in fact, attractive. They are not irrational. And we are not irrational if we choose to go down that path as well. It's just that rational does not necessarily mean good. The problem, as all of us who have gone down that path know, is that it is a lie. It does not give what it promises, and in the end, demands more. This is the nature of an idol. Money and wealth look attractive, And if our hopes are placed on them, they will demand our attention, our energy, all of who we are, because it will demand our worship. And in the end, it will disappoint. We know the stories of the rich man who builds a mansion on his own private island, and there he is sitting at the end, and he feels lonely and unhappy. We know the story of the New York stock trader who, after getting a bonus of $3.6 million, feels deprived because those around him are getting bonuses of $10 million. 
You know, our culture has achieved a remarkable consensus around the fact that materialism is bad. Money does not buy happiness, and we have many, many studies that have confirmed this fact, what Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. There are many reasons God commands us against idolatry. But one reason, certainly, is that it is a dead end. And so when Jesus warns this man to guard ourselves against covetousness, he does it out of love. Now, I don't know what happened to this man. Our text doesn't say. Maybe he found a rabbi to adjudicate in his favor. But my hope is that he learned something from that interaction that day. From an eternal perspective, it matters much more that he got his heart right with God than that he got half the inheritance. And the irony of it is, had his heart found his way towards God that day, had he realized that his Savior was standing right in front of him, he would have realized that the things that he was seeking, security, status, honor, they were his. Jesus would secure the salvation of all mankind. He would call us the beloved of God, honored sons and daughters of the living God in heaven. And so too, for us. If we realize, remember, that the most important things that we want are already ours in Christ, then whatever station in life that we find ourselves in, we can be content. And we can say, as the Apostle Paul did, I have learned the secret of being content in every, any and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So put your faith in God, for life, one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. This message never changes, but it does bear repeating. A second point I want to address is the one of stewardship, which is the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. And the question I'd like to answer is, <clears throat> how do we relate to the material things that God has given to us? And the first thing to note is that as a steward, the things in question are entrusted to us, they are not ours. This is easy to forget. A good illustration of this is given by J.R.R. Tolkien in his Lord of the Rings. Now, Tolkien was a believer, a good friend of C.S. Lewis's. In fact, he brought Lewis to faith. And he was certainly writing with biblical principles in mind when he gave us this story. Now, in the third book of the Lord of the Rings, we're brought to a scene in the land of Gondor. 
And as we learn, the kingdom is at that point being ruled by a steward, as a caretaker, because long ago, the rightful king had left and disappeared. And now a thousand years have passed and Aragorn has come back to take the throne. But the current steward of that time, Denethor, refuses to acknowledge him and says, I will not bow down to him. And Gandalf, this is in the movie, rebukes him, saying, authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. And Denethor stands up angrily and declares, the rule of Gondor is mine and no others. He had forgotten that the kingdom was not his. And I suppose the lesson here is, don't be that guy. <laughs> the things of this life, they are not ours either. We are stewards, caretakers. We may forget. But, you know, this is the reason why all of the parables, you know, the parable of the talents, the parable of the minas, the parable of the, of the vineyard with its tenants, there is the true owner, God, then there are those who take care of it, us. But when we mistakenly view it as, as ours, that is a distortion. And because we have distorted the relationship to these material things, then we're liable to worry and to fret because we believe it's ours. This is why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The laborer knows that nothing belongs to him, and so he sleeps in peace. The rich man believes that the possessions belong to him, and so he cannot sleep. So being rich towards God requires that we remember who we are. We are tenants tending to the vineyard, the servants of a master who is away for a time. And if we remember our status, I believe two things happen. First, we experience gratitude. When what we have is no longer a measure, sorry, when we know that it is entrusted to us, we no longer see what we have as a measure of our own worth, as we're so often tempted to do. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, the person who dies at the end with the most toys wins. Um, it's not, I'm not teaching that. Um, but we are very tempted to measure our worth by what we have. But if we see what we have as being given to us by God, then we experience gratitude. And we don't have to worry if we've been given two talents about the one who's been given five or the one who's been given one. 
We simply get to work. And we can be grateful. We can say, as it says in Psalm 9, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount of all your wonderful deeds. The second thing that happens when we remember that we are just caretakers is that we become free to use our possessions, our things, as the master wishes in the service of his kingdom. Now, we still have to exercise care as stewards, responsibility. But when we see material wealth as God sees it, then we realize that no matter what we have in this life, little or a lot, it is not a lot. And they're not true riches. And so it would make the most sense to use what we have so at the end of our days, he can look at us and say, you have not been foolish with what I gave you, but wise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. How do we, resp how do we respond when we're given much and our harvest is plentiful? We praise God. We praise God with thanksgiving. We thank our spouse, our family, our friends, our community. And we do good with the bounty that he has given to us. Be free. Spend it because it's not ours. Give generously. Give of our lives. We just commissioned missionaries to go overseas. They're giving of their lives. They've given up a life of filling up their own barns to deliver a message of hope to those who have not heard that life is more than the filling of barns. And in the same way, in whatever way that you've been called, do it with your whole heart. Be rich towards God. Now, I know this is much easier to say than to do. We all have our own journey. Well, let me end by telling you a bit of my own journey. I, believe, I became a believer in college after freshman year, and I'm still grateful to the workers at Crew, they were called Campus Crusade at the time, InterVarsity, for taking the time to tell me the gospel and show me the gospel. So when I became a believer, I was on fire, so to speak. Went to prayer meetings, went to Bible studies, led Bible studies, went to retreats. But there was not a lot of fire when it came to giving. A dollar, maybe two if it's a special occasion. And despite my advanced age and inflation, that was not a lot back then either. but it was painful. And I knew that God loves a cheerful giver, but cheerfulness is not what I was experiencing. But I had a good excuse. I was a poor student. I had loans. And then I graduated and made money. 
And so I gave a little more. And then I made more money. And I gave a little more. But I still had a good excuse. Remember the student loans? I mean, is it net after the loans and the debts? Does my car debt count? Or is it gross? Post-tax and post-deductions, right? But what it was really was that I was anxious, worried that I would not have enough. I didn't grow up with a lot of money. And I'd seen my parents worry. They worried about money all of my life. And I'm not just going to blame it on them. But you know what? I found it hard to give. And the odd thing is, no matter how much money I had, my relationship with money did not change. A lot or a little, the same fears were there. It was not until my perspective changed and I, and I accepted what I knew to be true but was so easy to forget. It is not mine. I am a steward. Concerns over money, making it, keeping it, losing it, they're only a problem if you think it's yours and not God's. As I was reminded recently by a very wise person in my life, my wife. <laughs> As I changed, my giving changed. As I became more aware of God's love and provision for me, my identity changed. As a son of God, as I knew that I was the son of God, a son of God, my concerns shifted from myself to those around me, my wife, my family, friends and colleagues. And for the first time, I actually felt the joy of giving. And it's a freedom that I would describe as an abundance in the Lord. Now, I'm not out of the woods yet. Like many of us here, I'm sure I'm a work in progress. And I was reminded of that not so many years ago when I was in seminary. And a fellow student of mine asked our professor, when we work as pastors, do we have to tithe? And my heart fluttered a little bit <laughs> because I wondered, now I'd read the Bible, of course, but is there an obscure verse? You know, the one that's from Second Hezekiah, the one that says, thou who art in ministry needeth not tithe. Had I missed that verse? But alas, it was not to be. Our professor answered, deflating the hopes of more than a few of us. There is no scripture I'm aware of exempting a minister from tithing. Now, it may strike you as odd, but for those of you, for, for those of us who work at the church, the congregation tithes. We get paid, and then we tithe back. But I think maybe it's not a bad thing that we treat it a little bit like monopoly money and do some good with it while we can. Well, Happy New Year. We are celebrating uh, Epiphany today, the dawning of a new day. And I had a quick survey. How many of you have uh, made a New Year's resolution? <laughs> a 
I looked it up in one survey, and the most popular re resolutions for 2023 are eat better, exercise more, and lose weight. No judgment. Health is important. But how about we add this one? Maybe, may we be rich towards God this year in our gratitude as the redeemed sons and daughters of the living God. And let us resolve to pray. Christ is here. When we seek him in the quietness of our hearts, he is here and he hears us. There is no need anymore to fight the crowds to get to the front. He is listening. So let us pray now together. Lord, help us be rich towards you this year so that one year from now we can look back and say that it was so. May we place our faith in you and not on the things of this world. May we know that we are secure in your love. May we do all that is within your will with all that you have entrusted to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.